Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel, and I'm joined by Eminence, Bill Werner, Brent Palm, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, food shelf use across the state remains high. A new book coming out next month provides an in-depth look at the Minnesota North Stars. A check-in with a Golden Gopher hockey team member, but first. It's been 25 years since a former professional wrestler and talk radio host was sworn in as Minnesota's 38th governor. Hi, I'm Jesse the Body Ventura. Relax, relax. I walk and talk where I want. I'm not touching. Notice the hypocrisy. I am a bad guy. I'm just Jesse the Body. I'm ahead of my time. Jesse defies definition. He doesn't fit in a box. Is it true there's like this wrestler running for office? I would like to lead the way. And next Tuesday at 8 p.m., Twin Cities PBS airs their documentary entitled Jesse Ventura Shocks the World. Eminence Bill Werner talked with executive producer and fellow state capitol reporter Mary LaHammer. Did you think that he was going to be able to do it? Well, a part of the film, we trace how I probably didn't think he was going to win because, as you know, as a political reporter, many of us have to pick one location on election night. We kind of try to pick the winner, so we're at the most interesting, (laughs) important headquarters. That's right. Which was not Ventura headquarters until I saw the returns coming out, and my father, Dean LaHammer, who was calling the races for the AP, as he did for 50 years, and I was checking in with him all night. I'll bet. What the numbers look like. What the numbers look like. Got a good source there, yeah. He kept saying, it looks like Ventura's going to do this. And yeah. I said, i got to get in the car. So that's the story we tell about how we to Ventura headquarters. And in the trailer, you're saying you went, uh, and statute of limitations expired, presumably you went 70, 80, 90, maybe even 100 miles an hour to the headquarters. And here's what happens after that. There's already champagne spraying everywhere. And we're like, how are we going to get in? Ventura captured 37%. And my photographer at the time yells, public television coming through and the sea parts and the whole crowd lets us up to the very front and we are there when he screamed the famous you always said all along the only poll that mattered was november 3rd what do you have to say to all your naysayers well i was correct wasn't i (laughs) that's that's uh, (laughs) a typical jesse ventura isn't it there yes it sure was when we screened public television coming through the reason it mattered is because we hosted the most debates And it was the most debate in either of our memories or experiences with candidates doing very few to almost no debates at this point. It stood out as a high watermark for debates. And Ventura stood out what we do in the film. We break down with his staff and advisors what the strategy was and why Ventura stood out and was good at debating. We go all the way back to his history wrestling and on the and mic. radio and talk show host and, and so on and so forth. And a right. radio talk show host, right. absolutely. But Barkley also talks about how he told the governor, if you don't know the answer, say, I don't know. Uh, that, that's Which an, was revolutionary, right? An astounding recommendation, right, in Correct. politics, right? He's because never po- heard anything about it. Right, politicians always like to have all film. the answers, right? Right. Instead of it looking like he was ill-informed, he looked like a normal person, a relatable human being. Exactly. Jesse Ventura was well-known for controversial comments. Uh, and, uh, what, are one, what are a couple that stand out to you? You know, what we talk about in the documentary and part of the story I wanted to tell was the underappreciated or lesser-known parts of his legacy. And a Mm -hmm. big part of that is women's rights. Mm -hmm. He marched for the Equal Rights Amendment. His mother was, you know, head nurse in the military, outranked his father, had a huge impact on him. And he really advocated for women's rights. But yet he goes in Playboy magazine and says he wants to be reincarnated as a double D bra, I believe. Right, that was one of them. talk about that conflict, right, of the, you know, wanting to advocate for women's rights and then saying things like that. So 
you know, my conclusion is he doesn't fit in a box. He's not predictable. And, he and, defies definition. Yeah, you know, and, and one of his other comments had to do with weak-minded religious people, and that created quite a stir. Uh, my my longtime friend, uh, who was the House chaplain, Lonnie Titus, um, has some stories to tell, <laughs> which I, I may not share right now, uh, about his conversations with Jesse Ventura after that happened. Uh, but that was another another instance where he created a tremendous amount of controversy through through a Absolutely. comment. Absolutely, yeah. And to this day, he is an unapologetic atheist. And he would say one of the reasons he might not be successful in higher office or running for president, which he's toyed with a lot and continues to do so in right. Right, film, right. is he said, you know, I don't think an atheist could get elected. But it's the reason he cares about public policy. And one of the major interviews in this is his advocacy in history, creating a nonpartisan judiciary advisory panel and picking judges, regardless of their political background or religious. And he is very concerned about the current state of the U.S. Supreme Court. And he says that because he feels like religion is being injected into politics, policy, and to the judiciary. You talk in the documentary, uh, and, and I've I've seen the trailer at this point, and everyone else will see the whole thing uh, uh, next Tuesday. But where you talk about, uh, well, here, let, let's play the actual clip. You don't have President Donald Trump without Governor Jesse Ventura. Be careful of who you help. <laughs> it's Dean Barkley, I think, after, right, his longtime advisor and confidant. Okay, yeah. so you make a, a statement there that is uh, an eye-opener. What are you basing? What are you basing that on, Mary? I'm going to reporter mode here with a sure. fellow reporter. You know, there's the obvious similarities between Trump and Ventura. Mm, you know, they were sure. celebrities who were on television, who were in people's homes, well known, and then pivot and translate to politics, out of the box politics, and they were friends and allies once upon a time. Sure. And Arnold and Schwarzenegger did the same kind of thing in California. Absolutely. Right, yeah, right. Schwarzenegger was the same right. thing. But Trump and his people, and we name names and places who came to Minnesota to very specifically study the playbook of Ventura and try to implement the same plan. And what you hear former U.S. Senator Dean Barkley say there is, be careful who you help, because now Ventura and Barkley have had a big split with President Trump and are not happy that they think they helped him. Do you think that Donald Trump modified his game plan based on information that he got from Jesse Ventura? I do know that the staff met and the men met and they talked specifics and they talked about their playbook. So I, I, I do think Trump's eventual run for president, this was some time ago, was informed by Ventura. And also, you know, using the media, tangling with the media. There's so many analogies, but what Ventura says is they feel very differently about their country and democracy and Ventura as a veteran goes after President Trump pretty hard in this. Let's talk about, since we're kind of into the present day, but we're, we're making connections back to 25 years ago and even earlier than that. Let's talk about Jesse Ventura's legacy. Um, the obvious thing is the train, right? Light rail. Yeah. Uh, that's the one that he pushed. Is that what, long term, in your judgment as, as an observer, that, is, that, is that what he's remembered for is, or, uh, or is he remembered for something else? Yeah, the train, he was, you know, and you right. remember in a State of the State address, I want to ride a train by the year 2000. You know, right. that, was, that was part of that speech. And yes, the light rail train did happen after being talked about for decades and decades and decades. So that is a really tangible part of his legacy. And still being talked but about, we might add. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, he was newly relevant this past session when he came to the Capitol and testified in front of the House and Senate for marijuana legalization. Correct. Saying it had saved his wife, the first lady's life. The very first pen after Governor Walls signed that bill into law, the first pen was delivered to Governor Jesse Ventura. And Ventura, in, in that and that signing ceremony, said, 
Jimi Hendrix, I think you're up there smiling at us. And that was one of the <laughs> yeah, final yeah, comments. So that's yeah. the issue that I think people know today. What mm-hmm. I don't think they know is that he was the first governor to institute domestic partner benefits and mm-hmm. advocate for the LGBTQ community. Again, a very relevant, salient issue that he vetoed abortion restrictions when he was given a bill for a 24-hour waiting period for abortion. And Correct. Said, I'll sign it if they do the same for men and vasectomies. Mm-hmm. You remember that, wrinkle. Sure. So I think some of, of those are, are lesser known, and also the context of, you know, liberal hero icon to many, Paul Wellstone, voted against same-sex marriage for the Defense of Marriage Act. At the same time, Jesse Ventura was way ahead of him and way more progressive in advocating for gay rights in the 90s. Does Gen Z care about Jesse Ventura, or is he a fossil to them? Great question. And so far, in all the advanced screenings we have done in front of a variety of audiences, My experience is hardly anyone under 30 has ever heard of Jesse Ventura. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. this is a complete revelation that Minnesota elected a third-party governor, that he was a a mishmash of policies, that he was progressive on some things. You know, he was pro-gun. He he had the biggest tax cut and the biggest tax rebate in American history. So he, he was very conservative on some things and then very liberal on some social policies. So he doesn't fit in that box. And what we have found is young people are blown away by this and that they played a role that so many young people showed up and voted. So this film is actually going to be taught in Minnesota schools and middle schools and high schools. We've already met with teachers on a developing curriculum so that they'll find out that democracy and voting matters and they can show up and they can make a difference. Tell us about the program itself, when it's going to be on the air so people can catch it. Thank you so much. Jesse Ventura Shocks the World runs on Twin Cities PBS January 16th at 8 p.m., and it'll be available for streaming soon thereafter, so please tune in. Twin Cities PBS's Mary LaHammer, executive producer of the forthcoming documentary, Jesse Ventura Shocks the World. Thanks, Bill. More Minnesota Matters after this. We asked kids what it took to be a dad. This is what they had to say. A father is always present. I mean, what what real father figure can you have if they're not there? In order to be a good dad, you need to love love your son. You need to put gas in your car so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. And you need to make some breakfast. Yep. I mean, just to maybe um, play, like, a board game with me or to just stay home and play um, some video games with me. Just to do, like, that one little thing is what I really look forward to. I'm not asking him to be a perfect dad, but he should try. He's just a constant force in my life. There's no other type of love like a dad's love because it's not comparable to anything else. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. Food shelf use and assistance hit another high in 2023. Joining me today is Angelica Klebisch, Director of Community Partnerships at Second Harvest Heartland. It was a really challenging year for a lot of families around the country and certainly for families here in Minnesota. Folks were experiencing the effects of inflation, emergency benefits were changed, grocery prices were high, we all felt that, right? And so it it made it hard for folks to keep their fridges full as we headed into winter. Um, We know that the economic recovery that some of the economic measures are showing has been uneven uh, because we're seeing a record number of food shelf visits. Um, in 2023, we saw 7 million food shelf visits, and that was already 2 million more than we saw in 2022, which was already 2 million more than we saw in 2021. 
So, you know, families are hurting and uh, our food shelf partners are seeing those significant increases. They're seeing folks going to uh, more than one food shelf a month. Their folks are traveling farther for food. So it, it's been a seriously challenging year and uh, we're very thankful for our agency and community partners on the ground that are able to help us address some of that need as best as we all possibly can. And, you know, looking, I mean, obviously we don't have a magic eight ball, but are we anticipating, you know, use to remain high here in 2024? We are. You know, our year actually starts in October, and we are already on pace to have another record-setting year. So it does seem like the effects that families are feeling are still happening. You know, we know that, uh, for instance, wage growth hasn't kept up with the cost of living and inflation. So we're anticipating that this demand is going to continue to be high. School lunch programs, have have that helped play a role in easing some of this, um, you know, um, by hunger? I think it's a little early to tell yet. We're super hopeful. We were very excited when that legislation was signed. I think anything that is supporting families that are looking for food is a good thing, and it's going to be helping with the need overall. So I personally am excited to see what that um, what the impact numbers look like once once we hit a year and get to see that evaluation. Well, those are some of the key questions I had. Was there anything else you wanted to add today? I'll say food insecurity affects everybody, right? Like when we talk about who is looking for food and who is needing support, it's folks all around us. And here we think about them as our neighbors. We imagine that they can be literally your neighbor next door. It can be yourself. Um, we think about how anybody is one or two economic troubles away from needing that type of support as well. And so it's important that we see this as a global issue that affects everyone and that at the same time, everyone can contribute to solving. Our food shelves are always looking for volunteers. Uh, We're looking for fundraising support for sure, but also that legislative piece where we need folks to be advocating with their legislators to turn their attention to this issue and to help us solve it. Thanks again to my guest, Angelica Klebisch, Director of Community Partnerships at Second Harvest Heartland. Time for a quick break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radal. A new book coming out next month provides an in-depth look at the Minnesota North Star's unlikely run to the Stanley Cup Finals in 1991. On this week's show, MNN's Brent Palm gets a preview from the author from St. Cloud, who was a PR intern for the North Star's team. Author Kevin Allen Spock of St. Cloud, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for the opportunity, Brent. I really appreciate it. Well, we're both about the same age and apparently both huge North Stars fans. And it just seems like yesterday, even though it was more than 30 years ago, uh, that the North Stars last played for Lord Stanley's Cup. You've got a book coming out about it, and I'm really excited to read about it. Kevin, tell us a little bit about Mirage of Destiny, the story of the 1990-91 Minnesota North Stars. Well, I think, you know, you kind of almost lived part of it yourself then, Brant. I mean, we would, we would have been in school at about the same time. And uh, I, I was, uh, you know, majoring in journalism and mass communications. And in the basement at Murphy Hall at the U, they had a bulletin board that had all kinds of different uh, internship opportunities. And I remember I was walking past that once, it would have been early in the fall of 1990, and I saw this notice where you could work in PR for the North Stars. And that really stopped me. I mean, because my goal pretty much all along had been to become a sports writer, and I was pretty sure that's what I wanted to be. I worked at the Daily, and, and, you know, even by then I was actually working at the St. Paul Pioneer Press part-time. But I just couldn't pass up that idea to see what it was like inside, you know, a major league sports team, an NHL team. 
And so I applied and was fortunate enough to be one of two. Uh, actually, it was another university guy uh, who got the other uh, intern slot with me. And uh, so, yeah, we were with that team, the uh, 1991, uh, you know, the year that, you know, the ownership changed. Obviously, Norm Green bought the team and, and uh, it's a real soap opera going from the beginning of the season to the end, culminating in that unlikely appearance in the Stanley Cup final. I still see bumper stickers on cars that say, I hate Norm Green. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was talking with somebody just the other day. I mean, is there a more loathed person in Minnesota sports history? And I I suppose some people could come up with some other ones, certainly. But I mean, you know, for a guy to, you know, ultimately take the franchise away and move them to Dallas, I think that still sticks in the craw of an awful lot of people. And, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, that I don't think people realize, you know, had the North Stars won the Stanley Cup in 1991, there's no way the franchise would have moved. They very likely would still be here. Uh, The Minnesota Wild would not exist. And uh, you wouldn't have this head-to-head matchup like they had this week, uh, you know, playing a home-and-home series with with Dallas. So uh, there's there's still a lot of ramifications that kind of emanate from that. Well, if you were doing PR for the North Stars as an intern, you obviously had access to a lot of players, management, other sources, and I'm guessing those folks contributed to your book? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, this story, Brent, I got to tell you, has been rattling around in the back of my mind since I had that experience that year. Um, I mean, for the people who don't know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners, anybody who's probably you know under their mid-30s, you know, they might not have, you know, real firsthand knowledge of the North Stars and, and who they were. I mean, you know, they were the NHL team that uh, originally came to Minnesota, preceded the Wild. And, uh, you know, that season, they were they were really going through a lot of turmoil. You know, ownership had changed. There was talk that the team might move or might fold. The previous owners were going to take a bunch of the franchise prospects to San Jose, which was going to get an expansion team. And attendance was just terrible. I mean, the team wasn't very good on the ice, and nobody was showing up to the games. But then later in the season, they started to win a little bit at home. They just barely got in the playoffs. And then they proceeded to upset the Chicago Blackhawks, who had the best record in the league, the St. Louis Blues, who had the second-best record in the league, and then the Edmonton Oilers, who had won the Stanley Cup the previous year. And so by that time, uh, you know, everybody was on the bandwagon and it was almost like Minnesota was, uh, you know, addicted to this drug called the Minnesota North Stars. And they got into the finals and they actually had a two games to one lead. And then I think you may have sort of mentioned they ran into the buzz of, of uh, Mario Lemieux. Uh, he kind of came back and they wound up winning the, uh, the final three games to take the series four games to two. And, you know, that experience and, you know, being close to Norm, you know, I always just thought, man, somebody's got to tell this story. So there's been some teams with losing records quite often that have made the playoffs, but there has there's only been one team in the history of the NHL and actually in the history of all pro sports that had a worse regular season than the 1991 North Stars and played for a championship. That was the 1938 Chicago Blackhawks. So you had this experience where the North Stars totally came out of left field. Nobody expected this. I always thought, you know, what what was it like for these guys who came that close to a championship and then it disappeared? And some of them went on to win the Stanley Cup. Mike Madonna won the Stanley Cup with the Dallas Stars later on. But a lot of these guys never did, and some of their careers didn't last very long either. And uh, so I started contacting all these guys, and uh, the response was absolutely overwhelming. I, originally, I set out to talk to like 60 different people, and uh, I got the vast majority of the sources that I wanted, including – 
uh, Mike Madonna, he was the first one to get on board and Bob Ganey spent a lot of time with me. And so the book itself is sort of a diary of that season with all of these guys' memories and my own. And then the second half of the book is sort of like, where are they now? You know, what's, what's happened to these guys then in the rest of their lives? And it's really amazing to hear all the different stories. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of heartwarming and a lot of heartbreak, but uh, a lot of people, you, you don't hear about athletes so much after their career is over. Well, it sounds like an awesome read. I'm going to check it out, Kevin, Alan Spock. And it sounds like it comes out next month at bookstores. Yeah, it's going to be on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and Target and other places that I you know, probably can't even all list off. Yeah, and it sounds like the official release date is February 20th. Correct. Yep, it's going to be uh, dropping that day. Eminence Brent Palman author Kevin Allen Spock. More Minnesota Matters in 60 seconds. It's Thursday night and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Started off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody squeeze in, say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed... ...could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. The Golden Gopher men's hockey team is ranked number 12 in the country, but they have not played as well as they would like. Minnesota is hosting Robert Morse University for a non-conference series this weekend before returning to Big Ten play next weekend. Gopher senior defenseman Carl Fish spoke with Eminence Sports Director Mike Grimm about the season to date. we got a weird dynamic going right now. Um, you know, the past couple of years we've had a lot of good players come through here and they they kind of made it a little bit easier for us to know what, what kind of team we had and everything. And um, I think this year we have to kind of change our identity a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of settling into what we what we know we need to be and how we need to play. And it just depends on if we're willing to do that two nights a week and come out and play. Yeah, it seems that that is one of the things, right? It's There's been a lot of nights where, or a lot of weekends, where it's a win and a loss or a win and an overtime game or what have you, where one night, like this week, for example, on Tuesday night, you know, you get the three goals from Snuggerud, you win at 6-2. to two. It's it's uh, Nothing's easy, so I don't want to say that it's easy, but it looked easy as we're as I'm watching on TV. Uh, day before on Sunday, um, get the early goal, give up a goal, and then the next thing you know, you end up on, on the wrong end of it. What do you think is a key to, to getting that, as you mentioned, that dynamic uh, to the point where, all right, we're going to put together, you know, back-to-back nights where where we're going to play relentless hockey the way that everyone, uh, you know, has been playing over the course of the time here. You know, I think I think one of the biggest things is if we, you know, buy into what we need to play like. Um, you know, I I think every hockey player can attest to it. It's really nice to make a fancy move and score a nice goal, and you know, it goes all over social media that kind right. of stuff. Um, but we got to come to the fact, you know, where that's not going to happen every time. Um, and I think a lot what we have struggle with right now are turnovers. Um, that's a big thing, and I know I can attest to it. I've had a couple bad ones myself. Um, but I think if we limit those, like you're going to see a lot more games that we had on Monday than 
the games we had on a Sunday. Yeah, and and you mentioned it from that standpoint. I think uh, Coach Motzko's talked about it. Um, obviously, you guys have talent. You've shown flashes. I mean, you're ranked in the top ten still, or top twelve, whatever it is. Um, so it's not a panic button push or anything. There's the there's been flashes where it's like might be the best you know, six minutes of any teams played in the country. And then here all of a sudden you've got, you know, uh, an eight-minute stretch where there's two catastrophic turnovers that end up in the net. So I suppose the process is how to maximize more of what I talked about earlier, the good stuff, and minimize the the catastrophic. Because you you can survive turnovers. Yep. um, But there's been some catastrophic ones, which is interesting, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit weird because, you know, I've, I've, you know, the past three years it's been – a lot of fun and a lot of you know it's been real easy easy coming and then uh, I think this year it's a lot more buy-in hard work getting back to the simple game the easy game and um, you can definitely see how much better college hockey has gotten just over in those that yep. four-year span so um, you really got to think like how hard college hockey is and how hard it is to score and to play and it's demanding on the body and so it's uh it's something you just got to take into into factor of you know playing the right way and getting back to the, the olden days you know yeah and then too i mean let's face it just in terms of personnel wise you you go from lacombe and faber and uh johnson and and others that have been around the block those three guys are you know have all playing in the nhl favors and the calder cup conversation and I, well, i'm gonna ask you about brock your old roommate here in a minute too but um and then you kind of bring in there there's the middle guys where you guys were you know, coming up with those guys, and now you're kind of taking that role over and bringing in really talented young defensemen, right? But they're young, and so there's that dynamic, right, where you're all trying to figure out in the defense core where where things fit in and and where guys should be and how to handle pressure and all that, right? Yeah, it's it's kind of you kind of got to take over the factor of teaching the freshman defensemen what college is like and how how we play and how everything goes. So it's kind of like a learning process at the same time of you know trying to better your own game so um it's been kind of weird trying to be the leader there and teach the you know the freshmen and we have a lot of sophomore defensemen too that are still learning a little bit um yeah being being a senior gets a little bit complicated <laughs> yeah because you're you're, uh, you're you're trying to figure everything out and then you got Kester I suppose who's providing some of that leadership as well what's it like to have him and I know he was injured early and certainly that uh, you know probably uh, slowed some of the early start of the season what's it like now having him back at full strength and man I love watching that kid play I mean I've been roommates with him for <laughs> for four years now so yeah. I know him on and off the ice uh, but I mean having him in the locker room having him you know out of practice during games everything he's He's basically exactly what you want in a leader. He he vocalizes what he wants, what we need to do, um, and it seems like everybody in the locker room respects him. And it's just somebody that you want to go go and play with. So yeah. I mean, he's he's definitely a character that I would love to have on my team. <laughs> Coach Amatsko, uh, I've been in a few of the media briefings with him, and he's he's been relatively calm around us in terms of. I think the term he always uses, I've seen this movie before, um, they're talented, they're, it's going to get there, we've seen how the book reads, all this stuff. Um, now that said, I'm guessing he's not always that calm with you guys when things go, but but how how do you think that the coaching staff has done in trying to get everybody on the same page and get you through into where you want to be playing? Yeah, um, definitely on the bench, he's, he's a yeller, <laughs> he likes to yell, yeah. but I think everybody's had a coach that yells or everybody has something like that, so it's yeah. not really anything that shocks us, but... He does a great job of afterwards in the locker room or during practice. He he lets us know that 
nothing to worry about. No, no panic needed. Um, obviously, teams are going to go through these kind of things, kind of phases. And he does a great job of, you know, keeping us focused at working on certain things. And we just have to buy in and start to figure those things out ourselves. Let's go for defenseman Carl Fish with MNN Sports Director Mike Graham. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Minnesota Matters. Be sure to join us again next week on this MNN affiliate station. Same time, same place. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Tasha Radolph.